everybody. Uh, if you have your Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab that. We're going to be in two places today, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, and then put a tab there. And when you find that, go also to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18. We are starting a brand new series today that we are going to be looking at the book of Ephesians. Uh, we're going to be looking at everything that's happening in the city of Ephesus. And what we're going to be discovering is that there are some ancient solutions for some very modern challenges that we face today. The Apostle Paul was the author of this book, and it is perhaps one of the most theologically rich, concise books in Scripture, one of my favorite books of the Bible. It is a survival guide for Christians. One of the things that we're going to be hearing a lot in the coming days and weeks and months that lie ahead as we walk through this book is the word shalom. Uh, it's a Hebrew word that the Apostle Paul uses in this book quite frequently, and it's translated as peace. But honestly, there is no English equivalent for this word. It conjures up thoughts of peace, justice, harmony, love, righteousness, and fundamentally, it, it encapsulates the way things are supposed to be. A way of thinking about this is perhaps you turned on the news recently, or you've been scrolling through your news feed, and you find something, you, you read something that just makes your blood boil, causes you to weep, causes you to fret and to worry about the state of the world. You look at it, and whether you're a Christian or even the most ardent of atheists in your gut, you know that what you're reading is wrong. It is morally wrong. There, there's something wrong with the world when you experience something like that. See, shalom is the antithesis to that. Shalom is those moments in your life that regardless of your faith, you, you experience something and you say, yes, that is the way things are supposed to be. And so Paul, he says, do you know where shalom is found? Do you know where shalom has been placed by God? It's been placed in his church. That's where he brings it to bear in the world. And the litmus test that he gives us as Christians who comprise of the capital C church is, is shalom in your life? The test is, in highlighting what, what the book of Ephesians is highlighting, is that it is a survival guide for us to not only survive in our local context, but to thrive in the midst of a world that isn't receptive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you living in this shalom? So a couple of questions that we'll be asking ourselves in the days and weeks that lie ahead is, are you killing sin or is sin killing you? Are you in the fight? Are you fighting for the sake of the gospel? Are you bringing to bear shalom in your neighborhood? Because here's what Paul is going to be sharing with us. If we truly have an understanding of what God is doing in the world, then what God is saying to us is he's going to bring all of his resurrecting power to bear on you. So if your neighbor or your coworker, or your family member, or your classmate, or your friend, if they are going to experience the shalom of the gospel, Paul says it's going to come through you. God is going to bring his resurrecting power into your life to bear upon the people around you so that they would be blessed through you. That's where Paul is going to be going for us uh, for the next couple of weeks. So uh, because we're going to be in this book for the next couple of weeks and maybe even a few months, what I would like to do today is to give us the backdrop. 
Because oftentimes when, when I was growing up and I was listening to preaching, oftentimes a pastor would say, open your Bibles to this book. And I didn't know who the key characters were. I didn't know what was going in the backstory. And most of all, oftentimes I didn't know why it mattered. Why was it so important for me to understand this? So today I want you to not only hear it, I want you to be able to see and to taste and to touch what was happening in the original context when Paul wrote this letter. And most significantly, why it matters for us today. And so in order to do that, we are going to be starting off not in Ephesians, but in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 18. So if you're there, uh, we're going to get there in just a bit. But let me give you a bit of a, a foretaste of the backdrop here. So an Ephesian is someone who is from Ephesus. And Ephesus was a port city, a very significant site to the empire of Rome. It was the fourth largest city. Almost 500,000 people were here. And because it was the economic hub of the empire, whether for business or for pleasure, the vast majority of the people in the Roman empire, for one reason or another, has gone through Ephesus a very significant place for trade or commerce or business or leisure or travel or whatever else have you, most people go to Ephesus. And one of the places that almost every single traveler would go to is the Temple of Artemis. Now, this is, this is a mock-up. We obviously don't have any pictures of what it looked like, but this is probably what it looked like in its heyday. You can go there today. It's in modern-day southeast Turkey, and uh, this is a heap of rubble. There's, there's a couple of pillars that are still there, but pretty much the whole thing has been torn down. But this comprises of 127 pillars, and each one of these pillars was 15 tons, more than 30,000 pounds. And in the first century, it was identified as one of the seven modern wonders of the world, a monstrosity of a temple. And so people would climb up these steps, enter into the temple, and there they would see her, the Greek goddess Artemis, a monstrosity of a shrine. And Artemis was the Greek goddess of fertility, And so people would come to her and they would pay homage to her in order to bless their crops, to bless their finances, uh, to bless their wombs so that they could have children, uh, to bless their life. Or maybe even if they had sick loved ones, they would bring them there and ask Artemis to, to heal them, to give them an abundance of life, to heal their sicknesses, to cause them to live. And so people would constantly be coming into this amazing temple to pay homage to Artemis. And after that, the the visitors would go down these steps and they would travel east and they would make their way into the market and there would be plenty of buying and selling and trading and from there they would continue on east until they made their way to the great amphitheater. And once again, today, this is a modern-day picture. You can see here that many of the seats have been turned into rubble. But in its heyday, it would seat 25,000 people. There isn't even an indoor arena in the NBA or the NHL that accommodates 25,000 people. This was an enormous stadium. 
And so from day all the way through night, they would have people giving speeches, giving monologues, doing dramatic uh, reenactments. And many historians have, have suggested that this was the place where Rome would put all of its efforts into trying to influence people within the empire of Rome. It's where they would try to indoctrinate their people to share Roman philosophies and ideologies and worldviews and perspectives to highlight that the best place to be on earth is within the empire of Rome. And so many people would make their way into this great amphitheater. Ephesus was an incredible monstrosity of a city, the fourth largest city in the known world at that time. And like I said, all the transportation and commerce and business and travel, it would all happen here. This was the place to be, a place where you were constantly reminded you are better under Rome. This is the best place where you can be. Perhaps the modern-day equivalent would be a place like New York City, a place where everyone wants to go, the center of the known world. If you want to rise in the corporate ranks, that's where you want to be. If you want to be something else, if you want a new identity, that's where you want to go. The type of place where, like New York, if you want to make a name for yourself, that's where you go. A place where, like Las Vegas, if you want to do something fun, what happens in Ephesus stays in Ephesus. You can be whoever you want to be, and no one will care. And for that reason, Ephesus continued to grow in power and in strength. It was a a place that was filled with brothels, a place of the occult, of incantations, uh, a place of spells and sorcery and riches and extravagance, where you could be anything you wanted to be and more. And this is where God began to share the gospel. This is where the gospel exploded. I mentioned to you that in between the uh, temple of Artemis and the great amphitheater was the market. And in that market, almost every single merchant would sell these tiny little six-inch Artemis dolls these silver shrines. And the reason people would buy them is so that they they believed it was kind of like a magic genie. They could bring it home, they would put it up on a, a public place for everyone to see, or they would bury it in the sand where they were going to harvest their crops, uh, or they would hide it in their house. And it was believed that if they had one of these Artemis dolls, it would bless their life. It would bless their, uh, their children, or their family, or their business, or their crops. And so everyone would buy one of these Artemis dolls in order to have in their homes. And so this is Ephesus in the first century. And it's here that a man named Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, a church that is persecuted for their faith. And what I find to be so interesting, so ironic, so providential, is that the author, Paul, formerly Saul, used to be one of the the greatest persecutors of the Christian church. See, Paul, I I know this is a bit of a refresher for some of us, but if you look in Acts chapter 9, you can see who Paul used to be. He used to have the name Saul, 
And he was a great hero in the Ephesian church. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had more zeal and passion than anyone before him and perhaps anyone after him. And he had decided when he heard about this Christianity, they used to mockingly call them followers of the way, as though there's some new philosophy, some new way to follow God. And it is the fulfillment of what they believe to be scripture, what we call the Old Testament, that Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of everything that they believed as Jews. And they decided they were going to snuff out this cult called Christianity. And Paul stood before the Sanhedrin, before the religious leaders, and he said, I would like to lead this movement. And they gave him full discretion, full power to snuff out this cult called Christianity. And on the day where Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was killed, he was there holding the cloaks of everyone while they stoned Stephen, looking on with approval. And one day, we can read about this in Acts chapter 9, he's on his way to Damascus. And the reason why he's going to Damascus is because he heard that there's a Christian movement going on and he's going to go snuff it out. He's going to go persecute and possibly even kill the Christians in that area. And he hears this amazing sound and there is a blinding light and he hears, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's blinded. And he says, who are you, Lord? And he hears, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And Saul is blinded for three days. Eventually, he meets the very people who he had intended to kill, and they say to him, let me tell you about this Jesus. And they fill in the dots for Saul, and he becomes converted, and he becomes a follower of Jesus, the greatest evangelist the world has ever seen, and eventually he writes the book of Ephesians which in many ways is the start of the movement of the Christian church, where Christianity explodes on account of the gospel. What Saul intended for evil, the Lord intended for good. And Paul becomes the greatest evangelist the world has ever seen. So if you have your Bibles open, turn to Acts chapter 18, starting at verse 19. This gives the backdrop of what now Paul, formerly Saul, now Paul, what he does in this place. Verse 22. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and he reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to spend more time with him, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is the Lord's will. And then he set sail from Ephesus, and when he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and he greeted the church, and then he went down to Antioch. So so here's what happens. In Ephesus, Paul, he goes straight into the synagogue, and everyone knows about Paul. They know that he's he's a hero in the Jewish community. He's persecuting the Christian church. He's going to snuff out this new religious sect, and they all know about him, but then he starts sharing the gospel of Jesus, and they are amazed And for the only time that's recorded in scripture, they say to him, would you stay? Could you stay longer with us? See, typically when Paul is about his missionary journeys, they're either throwing rocks at him or they're telling him to get out. But this is the one time they say, please stay. And he says, no, I have to go. But if it's the Lord's will, I will return. I will see you again. Chapter 19, verse 1. Take a look at this. 
So while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior, and he arrived back at Ephesus. So now he's back there. Look down to verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue, and he spoke boldly there for three more months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused, and they believed, they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. Remember, they were calling uh, Christians partners of the way. There it is right there. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Circle, highlight, underline. Verse 10. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and all the Greeks who lived in the entire province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So get this. We come across a man. His name is literally Tyrant. Baby name? I don't know just an idea. And so Tyrannus, he didn't believe, but then after three months of hearing the gospel, he becomes a convert, and everyone in the synagogue, they say, get out, we don't want to hear any more from you. And so Tyrannus, he comes up to Paul, and he says, hey, Paul, rather than being in the synagogue, um, I have a little theater. It holds uh, 25,000 people. During the morning, we are totally booked. During the evening, completely booked, but during the day, during the heat of the day, when it's a bazillion degrees outside and no one else wants to be around and everyone's taking their siestas, no one's there. Why don't you share the gospel during that time? And Paul says, okay, sure, I'll do that. And so, for two years, Paul preaches here. For two years, every single day, he comes to the great amphitheater. And as people are coming in and out through business, through commerce, through leisure, through travel, whatever else have you, and the end result is this, verse 10, all the Jews and all the Greeks who lived in the entire province of Asia, that's a huge place, heard the word of the Lord. Why? Because again, Ephesus is the most diverse well-traveled place in the known world. He is in the epicenter of the known world, sharing the good news of the gospel. God strategically places him right there. People would come from near and far. They would go through the temple of Artemis. They would come down into the market. They would purchase their Artemis dolls. They would travel a little bit farther east, and there they would start hearing about Jesus. And then they would go back home and they would start sharing with others the, the, new, the good news that they heard about Jesus. And so now Ephesus, the city that makes New York and Las Vegas look like all Saintsville, becomes the significant place where the gospel begins to spread. Not only that, miracles Great miracles are done in the city. Look at verse 11 if your Bibles are open. Remember, we got merchants and traders and travelers and businessmen. They they all go to the temple of Artemis. They go down, they buy the Artemis shrines. And the reason they buy these shrines is because they believe fundamentally if they have this shrine, if it's in their house, if it's in their dirt, then they'll be blessed by it. You want a better life? You want health, wealth, and happiness? You want healing for your loved ones? You want to be able to live longer? This is what you need. But then, what do we find in verse 12? You can read this here. Even handkerchiefs and aprons that had been touched by Paul were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured. And if you know your Bible well, you can't read this without thinking about what happens in the book of Mark, chapter 5. 
There's a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. She goes to doctors. She goes to sorcerers. And presumably, I I think it's a, a pretty good guess that she even goes to Ephesus, to the temple of Artemis. She even buys those shrines in hopes that someday she would be healed, but she only grows worse. Until she hears about a man named Jesus. And she heard that he is the great healer. He preaches with power and with authority. And she says to herself, if only I could touch the hem of his garment, then I would be healed. But she also knows that she is ceremonially unclean. She's not permitted to touch anyone. She has not touched anyone for over 12 years. And she says, maybe I can go in unnoticed. Maybe I can just touch the hem of his garment. And so she sneaks through the crowds. She touches the edge of his cloak. And instantly she is healed. And it says in scripture that Jesus felt the power go out from him. And he says something remarkable. He says, who touched my clothes? Not who touched me. Everyone's touching him. There's a whole crowd around him. He says, who touched my clothes? Because he felt the power go out from him. And now she knows that she has to go public. And she's so afraid and she sheepishly goes up to Jesus and she says, it was me. And then Jesus looks into her eyes and he says, daughter, Your faith has healed you. Not sorcerers, not incantations, not spells, not the Greek goddess Artemis, not the shrine doll, but her faith in Jesus has healed her. And here's Paul in a very pagan nation, many of which, almost all of which, believe that Artemis is the way to be healed. And he begins through the power of Jesus healing people even with handkerchiefs and aprons. And here's what happens next. Acts chapter 19, verse 18. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. That's confession, right? A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls, that's the Artemis dolls, the shrines, together and burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas, 50,000 pieces of silver. Remember, I said this to you a couple weeks ago, silver was a day's wages. So this is the equivalent of 150 years of wages. About five to $10 million is the equivalent today. And in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and it grew in power. <laughs> Amazing. And I just love how it says, in this way, in this way. So people, they've been hearing stories of Jesus for for days, weeks, months, presumably some of them even over a year, because we know that Paul was there for two years. They've been listening to Paul, they've heard the message of Jesus, but it takes this precise moment for them to step over the line and to say, you know what, I've been hedging my bets. For too long, I've been saying Artemis is the way, Jesus is the way, other uh, Roman gods and goddesses are the way, but it's time to make a change. It's time to go all in on the way, the truth, and the life. 
And I want you to notice that there's, there's two things that happen here. First, it's confession, right? That very first verse says that they issued a confession. They have recognized the error of their ways. But then right after that, there's a repentance. The Greek word is metanoia. It means to make a U-turn. They realize that there are some things in their closet, literally, that they needed to take out and they share publicly all these things, all these Artemis dolls, all these books, all these incantations, all these spells, all the things that they've been having in their house. They bring them out for everyone to see. They lay them down. They put on the metaphorical gasoline and woof, they let it all go because they recognize that Jesus is the only way. He is the truth and he is the life. And maybe, just maybe, you are in that place today. Perhaps you've been listening to sermons about Jesus, some spiritual TED Talks about Jesus for many months, perhaps even many years. But maybe, just maybe, you've been hedging your bets. Maybe there are things in your closet, whether metaphorical or even physical, that you know you need to get rid of. Things that you need to let go of a forgiveness that you need to make. You've been harboring bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness about a few people in your life. Or there's things that you've been keeping on your computer or on the internet that you need to let go of. Some relationships that you need to move on from by the way of the the influence that they have in your life. Some changes that you need to make in your personal life or in your business. Some decisions that you need to make that you know that these are things that are really affecting your spiritual life with Jesus. And you've come to a place today where you say, I have to make a change. I need to clean out my closet. I need to lay them down so that I could become a fully devoted follower of Jesus. See, I want to share with you that there's a variety of different ways that people try to follow Jesus. But there's only one way that matters. So let me share three ways with you, and all three of these ways are expressed in Acts chapter 18 and 19. The first one, which is very prominent, and we see this in the book of Acts, is that the Ephesians were treating Jesus, the gospel of Christ, as a magic genie. They were treating him as a magic genie god. After all, that's the way that they've been treating all their other gods. What would they do to Artemis? They would go into the temple, they would pay homage, and then they would take that shrine, that little genie, they would rub the shrine in hope that it would give them health, wealth, and happiness, give them the desire of their heart, give them what they desperately long for and need. And when they hear the Apostle Paul talking about Jesus, their temptation is to treat him the same way. They hedge their bets. They say, maybe I can have a little bit of Artemis. Maybe I can have a little bit of Jesus. And if I'm wrong on one or the other, I've hedged my bets and everything's okay. But it comes to this precise moment where they say, that cannot be. They bring everything out of their house. They lay it down. They burn it. And they say, no, we're fully devoted to Jesus. I cannot treat Jesus as my magic genie God. And we're not immune to this. We have to ask ourselves the same question. Do you serve God or does God serve you? The second way we try to treat Jesus is we might treat him as our cosmic consultant 
God. And if you're a member of Gateway, you've heard me talk about this before. And we see this in Acts chapter 18 and 19 as well. So if the magic genie God serves me, then the cosmic consultant God works for me. That's what a consultant does. They give you advice. They share some perspectives on how you can improve your life. And you get to determine at the end of the day whether you're going to take it or leave it. If you're going to follow the consultant's way or if you're going to follow your own way. And one thing we have to recognize is that when we come to Scripture, due to our sin nature, the traitor within, we will always, 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 always be tempted to treat God this way. We'll read scripture, and as long as I and God are on exactly the same page, then we're not going to have a problem. But the question is, if you are a follower of Jesus, this is the critical question that you have to ask. What happens when your way and God's way are in disagreement? What happens when God says go north and you say go south? A fully devoted follower of Jesus, the perspective that they have is even if I disagree, even if there's something I don't understand, I need to lay that down and say, I want to follow you. And that is what leads to our third point. In recognition that we can't treat God as our magic genie, we can't treat God as our cosmic consultant, there's only one true way that we can follow our Lord and God, and that is to treat him as our Lord God. If the genie God serves me, if the cosmic consultant God works for me, then the Lord God is a God whom I serve. Someone that I serve. I take the pages that I don't know, the comments in scripture that I might disagree with, and the perspective is clearly there is something here that I don't fully understand about the nature and the character of God and also the nature of who I am because I am made in the image of God and I just need to sit here and meditate for a while because I don't get it yet. I don't fully understand. But in my heart of heart, I know that I'm going to serve you, Lord, because you are the creator of the universe and I burn breakfast. You are the way, you are the truth, you are the life and you have determined the paths that I will take. And I will follow you in obedience and love. So that's what dictates my life. I say the standard of scripture is what dictates my life. And I want to follow him. I want him to make him everything in my life. The way that I treat my work, the way I treat my business, the way I treat my spouse, the way I treat my kids, the way I treat my leisure time. Everything comes under the rule in the reign of Jesus. Because it is the best way. And I want to follow him. And so here's the question for you. What have you done with the name of Jesus? Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Or have you been hedging your bets? Have you been trying to have your cake and eat it too? And one of the things that Paul is going to identify in the weeks that lie ahead is how powerful it is when we permit the rule and the reign of God to come under our life. And here's one of the benefits. Everyone around us begins to see the shalom of God. A little bit later today, I want to encourage you to finish Acts chapter 19, starting at verse 23. 
I want you to read to the end of the chapter. It is an absolutely amazing story. But let me just give you the Reader's Digest version of what happens here because it is so incredible. It's so profound. It's getting at what we're talking about here on understanding the shalom of God. So there's a businessman. His name is Demetrius, and uh, he's a silversmith. He's someone who builds and sells those Greek Artemis silver shrines. And he goes up to his fellow businessmen and he says, hey, did you notice we just had a terrible quarter? No one's buying our shrines. No one's buying our Artemis dolls. What's going on? They get together and they say, well, it's because of Paul. It's because of all the things that he's saying down at the theater. And they are enraged. They are indignant. See, even the economy begins to change on account of the gospel's presence. Not as many people are visiting the brothels. Not as many people are in having a good time. Not as many people are buying the Artemis shrines. Not as many people are going to the temple. Why is that the case? And so they rally the troops and a riot breaks out in Ephesus. Everyone goes down to the theater and they start chanting for hours and hours and hours. Long live Artemis! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Long live Artemis! And an amazing thing happens. The city clerk, the, the modern-day equivalent of what we call our mayor, so think of our mayor, uh, Henry Braun, he comes out and he says, what have these Christians done? And you know what's so amazing about this? He clearly identifies himself as a follower of Artemis. He's not a Christian, but for some reason he defends the Christian faith. He says, what have they done? Haven't they only made our city better? Do you have an accusation to make against them? Have they stolen from the temple? Have they stolen from you? Have they done anything wrong? All I see is that they have made our city better by their presence. So if you have an accusation to make, bring it to the court, but stop chanting and rioting and go home. And it ends. (laughs) They all go home. Let me give you two modern examples of how this has played out. A very similar story of churches showing in very vivid and real ways the shalom of God. The first is a story from about five years ago, a church in Sacramento called Bayside Church. And their local mall, about 30% of it burned to the ground. And the pastor and elders got together the very next day and they said, we want to host an offering to bless this mall because we want to bless our city. We want to share the good news of the gospel and we want our city to prosper. They held an offering and an enormous offering went to that mall in order for them to reconstruct it. Not only that, volunteers went down to the mall and they pulled away debris and they offered to help reconstruct it and they put it all together and the mall owner was dumbfounded. He thought to him, why are you doing this? And he goes up to the pastor when it's all said and done and he says, I don't understand why you did this, but I'm incredibly grateful. Is there any way that we can repay you? And the pastor says, no, we just wanted to bless our city. We wanted to bless you. We want to share the good news of the gospel. And he said, well, we got to do something. I know you've got a summer program. Would you, would you mind uh, staying here and promoting your, your summer camp, your VBS program here at the mall? And the pastor says, wow, sure. Okay, we'll do that. The very next day, the equivalent of a riot breaks out. People come, came from advocacy groups and they brought their signs and they were angry. They were indignant that a religious group was able to promote their summer camp at the mall. And the mall owner came out and he said, essentially, where were you? 
when we needed people most, the church was there. They cared for us. They loved us. They supported us. Where were you? And the riot ended and everyone went home. (laughs) And in thinking about that, I was reminded of something that just happened this past week. I'm not sure if uh, all of you know this, but uh, the Union of BC Municipalities just issued um, a proposal to start taxing all places of worship. And I know when you you hear that, it it might cause you to get a little bit anxious, like, oh, is that going to happen? Is this the beginning of the end? Are we going to start getting taxed? But you know, one of the things that we've been saying for some time, one of the litmus tests that we use as a church is, are we worthy of our tax-free status? One of the questions we ask is, what would happen if Gateway expired tomorrow, if this church didn't exist? Our hope and our prayer is that even the most ardent of atheists on city council in Abbotsford would begin to weep and to wail and to mourn because they would say, what a blessing that church was to us. And they wouldn't use these words, but what they would understand in their gut is that shalom had come to the city on account of the church gateway and and the other churches that comprised of this city, that the churches in Abbotsford would bless this city in such a way that even non-Christians would defend them and say, we just so wish they were here. And then I think of all of you. I've been your pastor for a year, a year and a half, but I've heard so many stories. A similar story of what happened in Sacramento with the mall. When Lou's Grill burned down, what did you do? You hosted an offering on behalf of them so that they could rebuild. And when COVID struck, what did you do? You reached out in droves to Archway Community Food Bank and said, how can we support and help the most vulnerable? And you came out in a marvelous way. And when city housing comes along and says, we have a huge population of homeless and we're worried about them freezing in the middle of the night, what did you do? You started hosting an extreme weather shelter. Time after time after time after time, your mission, your value has been, how can we be purveyors of shalom in our community? And see, the Apostle Paul, he starts off this letter to the church in Ephesus with these words, He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And from here, he's going to say, let me show you how to be purveyors of the gospel and to bring shalom to bear upon your city so that even the most ardent of atheists, even those who are far from God, would look at you and say, that is good, that is right. What is happening there? that our neighborhood would begin to change on account of our faith in Jesus. See, even though this is a letter that was written to a gathering of people over 2,000 years ago, it is a letter for you and for me too. And we're going to walk through this book verse by verse and discover more deeply what it means to fill the earth with God's shalom. Paul's going to say, let me tell you how to be a church to this city in Abbotsford, to this Fraser Valley. And I look forward to in the weeks and the days lying ahead to sharing God's word with you.